Welcome. You are listening to A Living World Conversation with Michael Johnson. Mike is the son of an Army colonel and a retired teacher. He has one foot in the world of traditional Hopi dryland farming, and his other foot is planted in the academic world with a Ph.D. in natural resource management as a member of the faculty at the University of Arizona Indigenous Resilience Center. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Kindly tell us where you were born. Well, I was born in Frankfurt, Germany, um, way back in the day, as they say. You know, my dad was in the military, and so um, I happened to be born in Frankfurt at the hospital there. And so uh, I was only there for about six months, and then uh, my dad transferred back to the States. And so uh, I kind of grew up uh, with uh, my younger part of my life on military reservations. Like in- All right. And your parents had three children. Yeah, my bigger brother, he's an architect back in Connecticut, interior architect, and my little sister, she's down here in Tucson. Uh, she's uh, one of the auditors, one of the chief auditors for the city of Tucson here in Arizona. And you had some qualities which your father noticed, and he sent you to, uh, to be with your grandfather during the summers. Yeah, at about age 10, you know, I was I was the middle child of the, of the family, of course. And I think, you know, um, because we were so close, we were only about 70 miles because my dad also, um, after after he um, went on the reserves for the military, he left the active duty and went to the reserves. And so he, he was able to be a, a, um, a minister and a day minister over at the Presbyterian Church in Winslow, Arizona, which is about 70 miles from, from our location out at Hopi. And so... He decided to start to drop me off there at about age 10, and I'd spend my summers out there uh, just with my grandfather and some of my other cousins. Uh, just, we'd farm and do all kinds of stuff as kids and things like that. And you noticed they didn't have TV at Hopi. Yeah, I think that was one of the, the biggest uh, things that I thought because I went out there, my grandfather still had the old antenna uh, that was up in the air, you know, with about 10 feet over the house, and we got one radio station from Flagstaff, Arizona, you know, we didn't have cable out there. We didn't have any, like, Netflix or any of that stuff that they have today. It was just old-school black-and-white TV, and we'd, we'd watch the news on that, and I didn't just watch a one, one, radio, one TV station uh, during the day sometimes. Kindly give our listeners a picture of what Hopi land is like. Well, Hopi land is, is very arid, semi-arid. You know, you have a lot of different sagebushes and, and rice grass and and other things uh, out there, forty salt bush, things like that. There's a lot of sand, uh, a lot of clay soils too that are mixed with sand. Uh, very arid, you know. There's 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 things that out there like these big outcroppings of rocks they call mesa that come shooting up from the valley floor. And there's about five different um, washes that run through the Hopi Reservation that feed into the Little Colorado River uh, up near a place called Loop, Arizona, that eventually jumps joins the big Colorado River down there into the Grand Canyon. Right. So would it be accurate to say your upbringing gave you at a young age the experience of two very different cultures and worldviews? Yeah, it did. It would be safe to say that. I think, you know, um, I got to see the best of both worlds. You know, I got to appreciate the the, the lifestyle and, and the values that were incorporated through my grandfather by farming. And at the same time, I got to have some of the modern conveniences that, that my parents had in Winslow. Um, 
and got a great education in Winslow. I didn't wasn't we didn't have an education on the reservation at that time. There wasn't even a high school out there, and so uh, I got all my formal education in, in Winslow, and so I enjoyed that part of it. But I also enjoyed going out to the Hopi reservation most of the time. I mean, one time when I told my grandfather I was bored. That was the last thing that happened to me because I because I was up at five thirty in the morning out there hoeing weeds, fixing fences, and that didn't last long. So I never said I'm bored again to my grandfather. But yeah, I've had I've had the best of both worlds. And your father, by sending you to be with your grandfather, thrust you into a paradox as a child. And you know, I I think you know my my time that I spent with my grandfather. Um, as boring as I thought it was, really, really, you know, moved my life in the direction where I got to see what helping a person would be like. I got to see the values of community and, and, and how people got together during certain times of the year to help each other, especially with farming. You know, me and my my cousins, we'd go out there early in the morning. There'd be about 10 of us. My grandfather would go around picking us up in the old truck that he had, and we'd all pile on the back and bump our heads on the old camper that used to be on there on the way out to the field. But you know, we used to plant together and talk with each other and have dinner together and stuff like that. And that's something that I sorely miss sometimes as I get older. We just don't have that sense of community like we used to. At least out in this world, you know, everybody kind of does their own thing. And and, um, and I really I really enjoy just being brought up that way in the summertime out there on the, the Hopi Reservation. And you told me when we talked earlier, your grandfather uh, taught you about humility and relationship and respect. Yeah, he sure did. I mean, there were times that, you know, we'd go out and gather, try to gather plants that he was looking for uh, that he would use for some purpose. And then we would go find it. We'd walk maybe two, three miles into the into the, into the canyons and the, and the outcroppings out there. And then we'd find those plants eventually, but he would always tell me not to take the first one, just to leave, the, just leave that there for the next generation. And so then we'd gather, gather them after that. But it was just that type of learning that I learned from him and just the importance of of not overworking the land and looking at things like uh, uh, the natural vegetation to determine how much soil moisture we had in, in the ground, I think, was very important, too. And uh, it was just using nature as the way it should be and trying to establish a relationship with it that I thought that was very important. Uh, and always leaving something behind. Even when we would go gather something, you know, we would leave a pot or, you know, and even my friends, when we go gather something, they would be like these Hopi prayer feathers, which are very important for Hopi society, and so we'd always lose something when we take something, and I think that's probably one of the most important things I've learned is that reciprocal relationship that we had, that, you know, this is not just a, a place that we that we live, but this is also a place that we have a relationship with, and I think that's very important. And part of that relationship was being in an exchange, so the gift you left was you're a part of that exchange for what you took. Yep, that's right. That was part of that, and I think that's something that I'll never forget. And I still practice that today. You know, when I go out and uh, some of my friends and they need something, we go gather something, then we always leave something behind. And uh, even when I go get stones for my house, you know, I'm building my house out there, and, and I always leave something behind. And uh, it's, it's just important for me to do that because in some ways, you know, even when I'm farming, the humility aspect comes into the into play because I don't, always get a crop every year, but just the, just the mere act that I go out and plant in an environment like that, you know, and, and raise crops like corn, beans, melons, squash, gourds, other crops out there is, is very, very, humi- you know, humility-orientated because you have to be that way. Uh, because not everything is going to be uh, hunky-dory all the time. And so 
uh, to plant the way we do and environment the way we do, to me, is just an act of faith. I mean, it's not so much if I raise something, but the most important thing is that I plant. It's the act that's important to me more than anything else, and that's the thing that, that drives me uh, as, as, I, as I go through my adult years. Yeah. Yeah. So as a child, you moved between the military bases of a young, powerful country, America, and the arid landscape of an ancient Hopi culture dwelling for over 4,000 years in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's two different worlds, as you say. You know, I think, you know, I think uh, uh, people should appreciate what they have more than what they don't have, I think. And I think, you know, when you come from an environment like that, you really understand what life is really about, the values associated with the type of life that we had out there, uh, and the things that you needed just to survive, and the discipline that was incorporated so that you could raise those those type of things. And, uh, and so it, it all adds up to a pretty good, pretty good simple lifestyle, but a very hard one in some ways, too, because you don't have access to all the modern conveniences you would in, in the bigger cities and on the military bases. And your grandfather gave you a Hopi name. Yep. Uh, that means burning embers are those those embers that are are, are lit bright red when the, when the fire dies down it's the coals on the on the ground and I think you know that's so much of, of who I am I'm a very passionate person and I like to keep people safe um, and things like that and so it reflects who I am and it drives me too and uh, and people when I'm out there call me that when I rather than Michael or, or Johnson they always call me that. Uh, because it means something, and I think, you know, Hopi names are very important. You know, when a, when a child is two weeks old, um, they're raised to the sun, and they're given a Hopi name, and they're also placed a small little piece of sweet corn pudding in their mouth to, to, to make sure that they remember where they're from. And so it's a beautiful baby naming ceremony that we have out there, and uh, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And the experience you had of going between military bases and Hopi, that experience became an opportunity for you. Yes, it did, because I got to see what was out there. You know, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of uh, children who are raised on the reservation don't get to see the opportunities. They're kind of just stuck in their, in their, in their, in their, in their little area that they live in. And I think, you know, unless we go out there and we explore a little bit and see what's out there, then we can figure out you know, the good and bad things of what the modern world has to offer. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people get tied up into those things like the use of alcohol and some abuse and things like that. But there are some good things out there. There are some very powerful tools that that the Western world offers that you could use. For an example, when we first got the, 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 the tractor out at Hopi, you know, they, the, the, the Soil Conservation Service gave us a moldboard plow, and a moldboard plow is, something that turns the soil over really fast, and it, and it, but it also was the number one thing that caused uh, the big dust bowl that we had in the 30s. And so uh, so we, we've modified that, and so we have a, a, a one-roll cultivator that only takes off about two, two inches of topsoil and acts like a modern hoe. And so uh, we've taken something good and adapted it to fit our climate and our environment, which I think is pretty good. So, you know, not everything's bad out there in the Western world. It's just that, you know, my grandfather used to say, just, Go out there and find what's good and bring it back home, you know, and, and, and just leave the rest of it behind. And, I, and, I, and that still holds true today. So America has an opportunity to mature 
in our time, and the Hopi have the opportunity to continue being clear they are collectively committed to surviving as a people. Mm -hmm. And yet, an either-or education system doesn't prepare you to deal with the paradoxical conditions, but you eventually figured out how to hold it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that I think that the, that that kind of um, um, reality is, is one that we all need to look at. You know, um, a paradox is a contradiction, which nonetheless may be true. Mm -hmm. So, holding a paradox is huge. It's it's a reason to be held in high esteem. One of the most telling signs of maturity is the ability to hold greater and greater contradictions without needing to resolve the tension by embracing one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And as a result of where your father sent you in the summers, you found your balance within that paradox, and you now enjoy moving between the stone house you built in your dryland farm in northeastern Arizona and the University of Arizona in Tucson. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I I really do enjoy that. I think, you know, um, when I look back on that, there is, you know, contradictions on both sides of the fence here. And um, and to find the balance, I think, is very important to me. And, and, and I'm always not in balance. Sometimes I, I get off balance because I drift one way or the other too, 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 um, too wholeheartedly sometimes. And I think you know, because I'm from both from two worlds, and, and my mother is Anglo and my dad is Hopi, and so I've always had that internal conflict sometimes. But you know, as I get more familiar with both, then I can see what 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 how I can benefit from both of those. And so, and and in that, I find my balance. And so, I think that's that's a contradiction that I don't really have to solve. It's one that I think uh, I've learned to value. I've learned to accept that. And by accepting that, I've also learned a lot about my identity where I fit in, where I don't fit in, and the things that make me happy. But I think it's that whole process of identifying oneself uh, and figuring out uh, what make, where the balance is that's important. And it's, it's not always an easy thing to achieve. You know, there's there's times that I'm on the fence and I choose to stay there because it's, it's too much of a threat to either side to go either direction. And, I, and, I, and my balance is achieved by me able to work in both worlds and act as a bridge. You know, I think that's one of the opportunities that I have with what I do is to act as a bridge between this world and, and the world at home and vice versa, to, to, to bring people closer together, to have more collaborations that would be useful to both societies, not just one or the other. And so, again, you're meeting that contradiction without really even having to solve the problem, but getting people to talk to each other and let them kind of navigate and solve their own problems. I think that's the benefit in the, in the services that I provide uh, just through my own upbringing. So rather than being a victim of what many people would see as a contradiction or difficulty, your experiences have equipped you to see opportunities. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the main things that I try to strive when I do give the uh, lectures and talks, especially about the world, the world that indigenous people are in. You know, I, I don't like portraying us as victims. I, I don't like that. I mean, we, especially at Hopi, we have 3,000 years of agricultural ingenuity, our indigenous ingenuity, where we're raising crops in the desert without any irrigation, you know, of less than 6 to 10 inches of annual rainfall a year, no soil amenities, 
planting depth anywhere from six inches to a foot and a half deep when it comes to corn. Right. And so uh, for us to do that and to raise that year in and year out, whether we have a crop or not, is, but to do that to me is, is off the charts. That's not, a, that's not an act of victimhood. That's an act of true resiliency, despite all the things and all the outside pressures that have come our way uh, since, since um, the word, you know, since people came over and discovered the Hopi. And so uh, it's a very valuable learning lesson. And so I always try to uh, talk about resiliency that indigenous people have uh, and, and one of survival built upon cultural and a system, uh, or cultural and religious belief system, that seems to have worked and also keeps their own life and their own communities about. And within that resilience is the opportunity to make life-sustaining choices. Yes, it is. And I think, you know, I think it's in that resilience is you also get, you know, uh, the chance to get back up when you're knocked down. You know, you don't stay there. You, you get up and you do it again. It's just like the act of faith that I talk about when I plant. It's not just planting corn it's about planting people it's about planting myself in many ways and so it's just that type of resiliency that i like to discuss because i think you know unless we go through these trial and errors that we seem to have in our daily lives and in our life in general i think you know we won't become the people uh, that can go out and carry the message you know it's good to carry a message but one of a, a strong message that people can relate to and it's a complex time Many of the people who make policy are often caught in an either-or worldview, and it's mm-hmm. vitally important to see solutions not visible to people caught in that world. Yeah, you're right. I think, you know, a lot of policy is also dictated by people who have not really lived the experience the majority of us have here in America. You know, we... we uh, the people who make the policy, in my mind, are still a little bit in touch with out, uh, out of the communities. And so, you know, it's very important that we have a voice and that we are represented in, in you know, radio shows like this and other opportunities that I've had uh, allow that to happen uh, to maybe get a bigger voice out there to, to grow more. And also just to listen to what people have to say. You know, I'm sure you've had a number of guests on this show that talk about their life, what you're doing with me to some extent, and uh, I'm sure people appreciate that. Yes, thank you. This is a Living World Conversation with Mike Johnson, a traditional dryland Hopi farmer and a member of the faculty at the University of Arizona Indigenous Resilience Center. So with what you know, it's been a natural step for you into the world of an Indigenous Resilience Center. Mm-hmm. It has been. You know, I... You see a living world story in a time when the media is telling us we're in a dying world story. Mm-hmm. I do. You know, I I think you know the the um, opportunities are still there. You know, I, I think, but I, I don't think the, the the facts are there to some extent. You know, I'm I'm not a person who likes to to go out and scare people uh, back into uh, changing the environment. You know, it's, it's happening. Things are changing, but. I don't want to use scare tactics and bring people to the table through fear. I want them to come to the table from, from a sense of understanding. You know, and, and one of my things that I like to talk about is, is this mountain approach, how we get to the top of the mountain. From a Western linear standpoint of view, someone would build a ladder, they'd go up rung by rung, and they'd eventually get there. They would achieve their goal, and then they would come back down once they achieve their goal. But an indigenous standpoint of view, when we climb the mountain, say, look, 
say instead of going straight up on a ladder, we see something to the right of us or the left of us, and we go investigate it. Then we get there and we look at that, and then we see something out, like maybe a lake or something. We'll go over there and look at it. So eventually we'll get up to the top of the mountain. And the one, the thing I want to ask your listeners is, you know, which would you rather do? Would you rather understand the mountain like the indigenous people would when when they go up to climb the mountain, or would you just want to go straight up achieve your goal and then come back down? You know, so that's kind of where we're at as far as as far as how we're looking at the environment and the climate. We need to really understand the issue first before we start making all these decisions that kind of scare people into change, and I don't think that's the way to do it. We have to come to change willingly to an understanding, I think, more than anything else, uh, because if we don't do that, uh, we're just going to go through the same process over and over again. Well, and I think a, a good example that you've shared with me already, you can see the big picture, and you have an opportunity and have now focused down on your special interest in growing crops which make people healthy. And this mm-hmm. summer you've you've begun a demonstration garden at Mesa Verde. Yeah. Well, next summer that's going to actually start. This is the summer that I was able to go up and talk to the people at Mesa Verde to put in an indigenous um demonstration plot uh, using traditional Pueblo techniques uh, to grow something up in that environment of about 6,000 feet elevation. And so because that was the home of the Pueblos for a number of years, all the, the 22 Pueblos that exist, the, the 20 or so that live in, um, or the 21 that, yeah, 20 or so that live in uh, New Mexico and the Hopis that live out here, and then there's one Pueblo tribe in Texas. And so we were all there at one time. That was one of our stopping points. And so it just gives me the ability to show the indigenous resiliency aspects of things and also, you know, get the Pueblos back in touch with their with their own culture and their own belief systems, too, to some extent, um, just to bring back that collaborative effort of doing something good, something for the community. And I think, you know, it's not all it's not all peaches and roses on, 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 on Pueblo tribes and on reservations in general. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, I think sometimes we forget who we are, and I think uh, we need to not do that. We always need to remember who we are. I think uh, that will serve us better if we do that. You've got a, a, an alive identity uh, and a resilient perspective on what you see. And yes, you're, I do. And you're comfortable with life and who you are. Yes, I am, but it's not always been that way, to be honest with you. You know, I think... Me running away from myself was just part of my life, you know. Um, unfortunately, uh, for a lot of my life, I, I chose to drink, and uh, that didn't do me any good. That just brought fear into my life and let me not understand who I was. But, you know, I haven't drank anything and, and something that could get me not to where I am for the, like, at least eight years now, and so I'm thankful that I've had that opportunity. And so uh, I continue to, to not drink, and I think that's probably the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Dealing with this problem, I think, has always been something that has been a crutch for me. And now my crutch that I have now is, is one of helping people, one of putting myself in a situation where I can talk about things like resiliency and, and move away from victimhood. And uh, in a way, it's always, it seems like I'm always talking about myself to some extent, too. So anytime I can bring a good message to the listeners out there, I think that's a good thing. Yes. And you were able to absorb the resilient inspiration of the Blackfeet nations who are raising buffalo in a cooperative relationship with the animals and the land and water and wind of the northern plains and mountains. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the Blackfeet nations and the coalition. Oh, they're, they're, 
they're up in up in Montana and other areas where they're trying to come up with their own active management areas, and and so uh, that would allow them to, to bring the buffalo back in greater numbers than what there were. Right. Uh, and I think you know establish that relationship and also do demonstrations showing show people how vital these animals are to restoring the, the ecology of the lands which they used to reside on plentifully. And so it's just that type of, of building those type of relationships up there uh, so that people can have a greater understanding of that these values of these animals is just not for their meat or their hide, but they're also values for the culture. And they're also a big part of the American landscape. You know, I think that's the most important thing. They are part of the American landscape. They, they, those animals have a relationship with the environment, and, and so do the people because of how they look at them up there. Uh, especially things like the Blackfeet Nation and all the other all the other nations that were that are up there, uh, up in the Dakotas and South Dakotas too, and the Dakota people also. So you talk about resilience both collectively and personally. You've said a little bit about overcoming the obstacles that made it difficult for you to see life-sustaining choices. Is there anything more you want to say about that? Yeah, I think you know um, some of the obstacles I've had. Um, are still there sometimes. I think, for an example, you know, um, when I was in 2018, I, I knew we were going to have a drought, but I planted it anyway, and uh, because that's what my faith told me to do. And, and uh, the crops that I planted stayed in the ground almost three months, uh, and then we got a big blast of these monsoon rains, which are seasonal here uh, up in Arizona. And, uh, and lo and behold, those 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 crops that I planted came shooting out of the ground, and I'm like, you know, I had enough to harvest that year. Uh, not for seed, but just to give to people and give to my family. And uh, I think when that happened, that really reaffirmed my my own belief and my own faith that you know this this is why we're told to do this every year, uh, regardless of what we see in the winter, in the summer, in the springtime, whether or not we're going to have a drought or not. And that kind of removed some of those doubts that I had as a person, both inside and and just looking around. And I said, yeah, this is what we're supposed to do. This is why it's important to plant every year, regardless of what we see in the springtime. Very important to do this every year. This is what we were told to do when we first arrived at Hopi a long, long time ago, is to have faith in everything we do. And this is just a reaffirmation of that. And so I know I'm, I just, I just, well, I'll never forget that experience because that was one I think is, was very, very important to remember and something that came just in time in my life where I really needed to see something like that happen. That's one of the times you really caught fire. Yep. Thank you for being, Mike. It's been wonderful to hear hey, your thank story. You for, thank, you for, thank you for being you too, sir. Thank you for being. This is KDNK, and you've been listening to a Living World Conversation with Michael Johnson, a Hopi farmer and on the faculty of the University of Arizona Indigenous Resilience Center. This is KDNK. Thank you for listening.